0: I'm
1: What's good, everybody? Buenos dias. Buongiorno. Ni hao, motherfuckers, and konnichiwa, bitches. Welcome, everybody, to the Abacabo Cafe. This is the Orange Road podcast on the internet, because that's where podcasts go. I am Jason Elmey. I'm your host. I am very, very glad that you are joining us today for this very special episode of Abacabo Cafe. Today, we're talking about Orange Road TV episode nine. Kurumi-chan, I'll Teach You How to Date, originally aired June 1st of 1987. This episode was directed by Suda Yumiko, who you should remember, Suda directed episode two, A Little Lemony Kiss for Her. This episode, episode nine, Kurumi-chan, I'll Teach You How to Date, is uh, definitely a little bit of a departure uh, from episode two, at least in my opinion. This episode is a little bit less uh, like pensive and contemplative Whereas episode two, the lemony kiss, it, there was a lot in there that was, um, you know, more unpacking Casca's feelings and what's going on here with um, some kind of meaningful stuff. This episode is a little bit more uh, action, a little bit more high energy, and um, definitely a departure from from episode two. I think uh, maybe not v- like in terms of visual style, but certainly in terms of of episode content, of narrative content. This episode was written by Tomita Sukihiro. Uh, Tomita also wrote episode four, The Disturbing Sea Experience, and episode seven, A Spark-Colored Kiss. Uh, this episode kind of falls in line with those as well. Uh, this is kind of a similar similar vibe here. And it's obvious that um, the the filmmakers want us to know that we're on the cusp of summer here, as the episode opens. It's June now. This is summertime. It's it's in swing. There's a poster of a girl in a bikini on Casca's wall. Even before Casca sits up, we get that the whole screen is taken up by this poster that's hung on his wall, and it's a woman in a bikini. It looks like the sun is is shining on her brightly. She appears to almost be shimmering from I don't know suntan lotion, whatever. Use your imagination. But the idea is that um this there's this visual cue that we are, we are now entering the summertime. And then we also get uh, Manami uh, manually, I might add, putting away their winter clothes. She makes a comment that she's clearing out the winter clothes. She should have done it earlier, but she is now finally getting around to clearing out the winter clothes, putting those away in storage, because we're not going to need those uh, until later on in the year. Why she's got to do it manually? I don't know. She looks like she's about to throw out her back in that in that scene. She's like hunched over this giant box. I don't know why she doesn't just use her power, but um Kurumi obviously not as reluctant to use her power. It seems like it would be a convenient thing to use around the house. I got to agree with Kurumi. I mean, Kasuga sort of makes the point of what if the neighbors see, you know, he rushes to the windows and pulls down the shades as, as Kurumi is moving all of the objects in her room around and redecorating her room using the power. But I'm, I'm kind of on Kurumi's side here. I understand if you want to keep this thing a secret, but if I can move things with my brain, don't expect me to pick up that heavy-ass dresser. You can expect me to move the heavy-ass dresser with my brain. That's just how I'm going to do things around the house. Kurumi, with this, she demonstrates how easy it really would be to do all of this moving or redecorating and, and things around the house uh, if you just use your your Esper power. Uh, this is also interesting because it's one of the few times maybe the only time that you actually see the twins' room. We see Casuga's room all the time. And um, the event with Kurumi completely redecorating her room is really only significant because it establishes the conflict for the episode or it sets up the conflict for the episode because Kurumi's used up her power. So we're, we're going into this episode. In the very first minutes, she's already used up her power. She moved all of the furniture, two beds, dressers, desks, everything in their room, and now she's pooped. And they communicate this visually. Anytime one of the Kasukas uses up their power, they they hit their limit for that period of time. They always express it in a form of physical malaise. They they plop down on there, like in this instance, Kurumi like plops down backward on her bed and just, ah, you know, she's she's like exhausted, worn out. In another episode, Kasuka uses up his power and he's sort of like hunched over the rowboat just looking exhausted, can't even move his head to look up at Ayukawa. So the idea is that there's these visual cues that tell us as the viewer that they have used up all of their power and that they are now exhausted. And this is what happens here, of course. They tell us that she's exhausted. They, they go even further. After Kurumi plops down in the bed, we get Manami and, and Kasuka talking about how she's used up her power. And so that lets us know that whatever she's about to get herself into, it's gonna be she's gonna be powerless for that. And and so I, I think that's kind of important. This is kind of the main. I mean, I know um, like rescuing Kurumi or bailing out Kurumi is kind of a frequent subplot. That it happened in the um, in the episode where they go to the disco. That's episode three, I believe. Where where um they have to go find her at the disco because she took the ticket that she found that fell out of Kozuka's pocket, and that uh, sort of drives the plot forward. That Kozuka is going to bump into Shikaru-chan and um, Ayukawa at the disco. So of course. Uh, that rescuing Kurumi is sort of this um, not a main part of that plot. Here it's a main part of the plot. It's going to drive all of the other things that occur in this episode are, are kind of built around this. We don't know where Kurumi is. We think she might have been taken by somebody who's maybe got bad intentions and we need to find her and help her out and get her out of this jam in case she's in a jam. They don't really know that she's in a jam. They suspect she's in a jam and they, they want to get her out of it. Now, uh we do get a significant shot. This is a something that can go unnoticed in a in a, a television program or a film when uh the viewer is not uh super versed in like the filmmaking technique. But we get this kind of insert shot. Kurumi is walking uh to go shopping with Manami and Kasuga and for some reason brought Jengaro, but she's going shopping with them. Uh, for some decor for her room that they were redecorating. Uh, that's unimportant. But because she's in this this state of physical depletion, she's got this sort of mental haze and physical haze, she bumps into a guy. She almost trips this guy who's walking in the opposite direction. As the Costas continue to walk away, we get this close-up, this kind of tight shot that's sort of like collarbone up. This is important. I mean, anytime the camera gets close enough to to show us the details of someone's face what they're wearing, how their hair is styled, what color their eyes are, whatever. We're learning details about them, but we, we only learn these details because they're important later on. We need to remember this. This shot is important. It's sort of establishing this antagonist. And so um, it's something, it's a, it's a quick shot. It can go unnoticed, but this person uh, who we're, we're going to learn all about who this person is, but this person notices Kurumi because she almost bumped into him. And and that's our first indication that this person may be a an antagonist for the episode, which which he is. And uh, the gang really rather conveniently assembles here. Kosuga notices Yusaku outside the window of where the Kosugas were shopping, and uh, he just goes straight up to Yusaku very boldly. I thought. He was scared shitless the last episode that that Yusaku was going to like beat the crap out of him over this whole, you know, modeling thing before Yusaku asked him to intercede on his behalf. Kasuka is like ready to climb the fence of the roof to get away from Yusaku. And here he just goes right up to the guy and like pats him on the shoulder, like, What the hell are you doing here? Of course, Yusaku is looking in at Shikaru and and Ayukawa. And um, I wonder if Yusaku was really stalking. Shikaru, or was Yusaku actually following Kasuga? And then when Kasuga noticed Yusaku, he had to pretend to be looking into this store at Shikaru and Ayukawa. I don't know. I'm not going to judge. I think I've already made my opinions clear on Yusaku's feelings towards Kasuga, and it's completely, I mean, Yusaku already has a history of stalking Kasuga. I think it's completely possible that, that he was stalking Kasuga and then pretending to be looking into this women's, Uh, department store and it was convenient that shikaru chan and Ayuko happened to be shopping in there. And that's how the gang all gets together, right? So they all meet, they notice that that Kurumi is gone and now the, the episode truly kicks off. And Komatsu and Hata, they show up out of nowhere. I mean, it's almost as if they had an ESP power and they teleported there, at least with Yusaku and Shikaru and Ayuko getting added on, it's kind of a little bit of a small world thing, like uh, maybe kind of hard to believe, but it's still within the realm of possibility that that they just happen to be shopping in the same place at the same time and and bump into each other. Sure, things like that happen in real life. Um, but with with Kumatsu and Hata showing up, they just, I don't know, hey, we heard something was going down and we're here. Uh, how'd you hear? Who told you? What's happening? What are you doing here? Why... Don't bother with questions like that. Stuff like this is going to come up over the course of the series in Orange Road. Just don't think too much about it. Don't try to make sense of some of the things that happen in Orange Road. There's going to be some other things that we're going to talk about in future episodes. Don't worry about where Hata and Komatsu came from. They're just here to make things better, plot-wise. But I actually really enjoy that sense of community amongst the characters here, too. This is one of the episodes where... Everybody's kind of all together, same place, same time. Um, prior to this episode, there's not a whole lot of commingling of people like Komatsu and Hanta with, with uh, Ayukua and Ishikaru. Ayukoa even says when one of them is in trouble, they all count on each other. And I think Kasuka here is able to appreciate Ayukoa in a new way because she connects him with this wider community via her friends who join in the search for Kurumi. To help out, and Kosugi is kind of touched by their willingness to help out as complete strangers to him and his family, but because Ayuko has these connections and because they respect Ayuko, they're they're doing this um, on her behalf for Kosugi. So, I think he's able to appreciate Ayuko's connections to this to this uh, life that he doesn't know about in, in a way that's different from previous episodes where this her her life that he didn't know about or he, he wasn't aware of was intimidating to him because he thought maybe it involved other men that she was interested in. But instead, now it's it's this community that he's really able to appreciate because they have each other's backs, essentially. Also, this plot would be rendered completely null if cell phones existed. So we've got to appreciate that this is occurring in 1987 Japan because otherwise, I mean, you'd just be able to text Kurumi, right? I guess you could say that Kudumi lost hers or it got wet or the battery died. All of that stuff happens too, but it's a little cheesy these days to, we know everybody's got a cell phone and then to have to contrive this plot point where they lose it or it's stolen or it breaks or it, it dies. And now no one can get in touch with them in order to get to that point. You have to appreciate the lower tech era. I mean, that's something that's kind of a subtle magic about this show being set when it's set and us being able to look back at it as a product indicative of its time it's it's pretty interesting that kasuga primarily fears an outcome where kurumi demolishes some dude who tried to take advantage of her kasuga imagines a a worst case scenario where kurumi just completely trounces a would-be assailant. I mean, she shreds his clothing. She, she bashes him into walls and floors and just completely dominates the guy. And I think it's an indication of Kurumi's personality. I mean, she's already sort of done some of these things like shredding Takashi's paper. She asserts herself. Well, I think I can say with, with complete confidence that Kurumi is not a wallflower. Kurumi is not one to allow herself to be run over. And so that's sort of a strength of our character. Um, She's not going to be talked into something. I mean, she's a bit naive, maybe more than a bit. But uh, at the end of the day, Costco's not worried. He doesn't imagine some guy taking advantage of, of a helpless Kurumi. He, he imagines a, a guy being just completely overpowered, overmatched, outmatched, outclassed, and just destroyed by, by Kurumi and that's his concern that it's going to out them or that she's just going to completely kill this guy who tries to lay a hand on her. I don't know it's not like uh, Kurumi is a this poor female and we got to take a, we got to look out for her. I mean, this this episode can kind of come across that way because everybody's got to find Kurumi. But then on the other hand, Kousuke's true fear is is Kurumi's power, not not Kurumi's weakness. And so that's i don't know it's it's kind of a a female empowerment here is that most of the women in the show are quite strong in different ways and this is one of kurumi's great strengths is that she's not going to be taken advantage of kasuka knows she's not going to be taken advantage of and she has the power to ensure that a would-be assailant uh becomes dead meat so manami reminds has to remind kasuka here that kurumi's power is exhausted so kasuka's assumption that maybe she would destroy somebody who who tried to touch her is corrected a little bit by Manami but um we all know that the power regenerates i mean it's going to come back you don't just use it up and it's gone for life i don't know if if they need to um have a, a good night's sleep or or what but we're going to learn a little bit about that in this episode like if a power can be worn out how do you bring it back again how do you recharge that we get a little bit of that here and it's the same way you would recharge your battery in other ways if you exhausted yourself physically by uh, doing athletics exercise or something like that then you're going to replenish that uh with rest and with nutrition and it's much the same way with the power and we're going to see that here in this episode now kurumi's um kidnapper the kurumi napper uh appears like a police sketch as manami describes the initial um the initial physical description of him so she's pointing out all of his features and he sort of comes together almost as if on paper. He's drawn in an outline and uh, it's kind of a fun stylistic element as she describes his features. The features kind of appear on screen as if drawn there. It's almost like police sketch type of thing, but in an anime style, of course. It, it sort of helps divert attention away from the antagonist that got uh, introduced a moment earlier in the episode. The guy Kurumi uh, tripped as he was walking past and we got that insert shot of him and he looked quite different. The only, the only similarity was that they were both wearing sunglasses. The, the police sketch quote of, of this guy who's, who's uh, kidnapped Kurumi or taking Kurumi looks nothing like our actual antagonist. Um, but it does, it does help drive some of the humor of this episode by, by, by basically making him look exactly like this big, they described him as sex crazed. I don't know what it means to look sex crazed if it's just something about the eyes or what. They basically imagine him just like Sabuchan. So when they find Sabu they they think it was him, right? And they they sort of profile this guy, unfortunately, on, on his looks. And he definitely acts like somebody who got his ass kicked by Ayukoa before. I mean, she Ayukoa describes them as friends, but yeah. uh, he's he's acting like he's got his ass whipped by Ayuko before. There's a good use of still frame images in this episode. A series of still frames help to communicate that this search for uh, Kurumi is ongoing. And Kasuga and Ayukoa and Shikaru and Yusaku are kind of going to these different places and they're looking and they're asking, has anybody seen her? And we get this in a series of still images, which... Is an effective use because uh, the still image doesn't require a lot of animation, as we've as we've discussed previously. A still image only has to be drawn once; you don't have to draw each individual frame. And it also is a very effective. It's used in live action um, films and television as well. Films like Goodfellas put it to exceptional use as well to communicate a certain uh, photographic uh, theme or element. And in this case, they're using it to kind of um, communicate the the passage of time as, as the gang is searching for Kudomi. They're, they're going this place, this place, this place, that place. And it, it uh, demonstrates without having to flesh out every single detail and, and being very uh, efficient for the animators that, that this search has kind of been going on over the course of the day and that they've been looking for her for uh, more than what would feel like five minutes if they didn't include these still frames. So again, it's another subtle thing that you may not no- notice the first time you watch or the second time you watch this episode, but you do notice and and um, on further viewings and, and it does have a good impact on the idea that they're looking and looking and looking for her as time goes on. Also in this episode, finally, 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 Kasuga and Ayukawa Actually, get some shit for being somewhere inappropriate for their age. It's a little weird that they get away with drinking openly at a disco, but at a park in daylight, totally inappropriate just because it's decorated like Valentine's Day and there's some couples hugging and kissing. So I don't really get it, but at least, at least somebody finally recognizes that these are kids and that there are places that they don't belong. Now, Kasuga and Aikwa are uh, embarrassed into leaving of course, at the suggestion that perhaps they were also looking for a good spot to make out, maybe. And as they leave, they they pass a couple who watches them go, and the camera ling- lingers on this couple for a moment. The couple couple gives them kind of this quizzical look, like, what the heck are these two doing uh, getting out of here in such a hurry? Or maybe they were looking at them weird because they're young and they didn't belong, and you're too young to be making out in a public park, kids, even though that's, that's exactly what kids do. But I, I, I liked that the woman as they zoom in on this couple, the woman is wearing a lapel pin of the Eiffel Tower, which is, of course, it's a symbol of of Paris, France. It's you see the eiffel tower and you think of paris france it immediately communicates paris france and it also uh, associates it with these like romantic the romantic imagery of france and the the music and the you know kissing under the eiffel tower and this this romantic element that goes with it and it's in keeping with the visual style of the park of course but then it's also Kind of cool because my wife and I got married at the Chapelle du Jardin in the Paris Las Vegas Hotel and Casino, and that was pretty awesome. And so um, this is something that I I appreciate on a personal level, a personal touch. I like seeing the Eiffel Tower because that's where me and my wife got married. We got married at the fake Eiffel Tower, of course, not the real one because we're not that fancy, but we got married at the fake one in Las Vegas. And uh, so I I like to imagine that they included this little element for me. 19 years before my wife and I got married? No, 29 years before my wife and I got married. So they definitely did it for me. Now we get to cut to Kurumi-chan's date. That's what it is, right? Um, her, The Kurumi-napper has taken her out to eat. He's feeding her just whatever she wants. She's taking advantage. And he's taking breaks from this, this date to watch this super-duper rapey video. That's the only way I can describe it. I don't know if they really got videos like this in the 80s that kids could watch to kind of teach them how to date rape somebody, but that's that's really all this video is. This video was really kind of messed up because it's talking about defenseless and vulnerable, when the woman's going to be defenseless, when she's going to be vulnerable and shit. This is like a date rapist training course. I don't understand it, and I definitely don't approve of it. I don't understand why he can't just... She's obviously hanging out with him solo. Well, Jingaro's along, but it's a solo. It's a one-on-one thing. He's taking her out to eat. She loves eating. Guess what you learned today, dude? This girl likes eating. You could probably invite her out to a couple of meals. You could go out a few times, get to know each other a little bit, and then you could probably bang. It always worked at home. So I don't understand why he's got to watch some weirdo video about sealing the deal when Couldn't you just be yourself and enjoy your time together with somebody out on a few dates and then just like, I don't know, do the sex thing consensually? Look, I know crazy ideas don't belong in a podcast about Orange Road, but I'm here to tell you crazy ideas like going out, dating, going on a few dates, and then doing sex consensually. It's insane, I know. I'll stop yapping about it. So they're actually, I mean, the video is actually suggesting that he take her somewhere where he can feed her alcohol, get her tipsy, and then su- suggest they go somewhere nicer. Nicer for his penis is what he means. And then if she refuses to basically keep at it, like um, it's like the art of the sale. I mean, this guy, it's like a telemarketing scheme, right? I mean, it, it's it's not telemarketing. It's sex, dude. And, and uh, like, if she says no, then Let's respect that, but but th- this is another one of those elements where you can look back and you can say these th- there's these sexist attitudes of 1980s, and you could try to point fingers at cultures or something. But I don't necessarily think that that's appropriate here. Again, I've I've been kind of defensive of these elements in Orange Road, and it's not because I think the content of this video that he's watching in the story is acceptable uh, in any context, modern or. 30 years ago but what i am saying is that at no point in time do the filmmakers intend for us to look at the kurumi napper as if he is a admirable character he's not someone that we're supposed to emulate or or even really feel a particular connection with or empathy for he's supposed to be this kind of antagonist character in this kind of douchebag i mean the fact that they're painting him as a is a, a potential rapist is kind of terrible but he's not supposed to be, and he's not a character that ever shows up again after this episode. Sorry for the spoiler, guys, but he never shows back up. He's an antagonist for this episode. We're not meant to admire him. We're we're kind of meant to look down on this a little bit. Like my bi- diatribe a moment ago about why can't you just go out on a couple of dates with Kudomi, get to know her, and then maybe you could have consensual sex. Like that's what normal people do. We're supposed to judge this guy for not taking that very sensible and ethical approach towards dating and getting sex so again I don't necessarily think that this is an indication of some deficit in in, in in the in the filmmakers minds in their in their hearts it's not a deficit of some kind of like a cultural thing what's considered acceptable because I don't believe we're meant to look at this as if this is just a, an acceptable goings on of 1987 Japan. So I don't think it is. I think it's meant to establish him as more of an antagonist and kind of a pathetic guy. I mean, he, he kidnapped Kurumi and he doesn't even know what to do with her, right? He's got to watch a video. Like he can't, I don't know, just be yourself on a date. Kudomi, on the other hand, she gonna wind up on my six hundred pound life in the early 2000s She keep eating like this. I don't understand it. It's got to be metabolism because of the power. I don't think we talk much about biochemistry and how the ESP power, the Costco family power, might impact the the uh, cellular metabolism of of these of these kids. But. You've got to imagine that if they've got this extra stuff going on that can exhaust them physically when they use it up, it has to be a drain on them metabolically as well. So maybe they're just burning through like, I don't know, 4,000 calories a day. They eat like Michael Phelps. I don't know. But she is just going nuts on the food. She's going ham. I mean, they even animate her with her face kind of covered with food. That tells you that she's in her her mind, she's not on a date. She's not trying to impress this guy. She's got food all over her face. It also makes her seem juvenile. This is what my daughter does. My daughter's twenty two months old. This is what my daughter does. She gets food all over her face when she eats. It's a juvenile thing. it it it, it makes her seem diminutive. And it also tells you that she's not she's not out on a date. She might be trying to impress the guy if she thought she was out on a date. She's taking advantage of, of his offer of free food. And again, that's another kind of aspect of her naivety that she doesn't think that maybe he might expect something back from her after he buys her all of this food. Um, It shows you kind of her naivety towards that. She's willing to accept this person's kindness. Isn't he a nice guy? He's offering me all this food. She doesn't, Seem to think that he might want or expect that she would then return some some form of favor for him, if you know what I mean. Her real defense is that no man can afford to keep taking her out to eat. You can't take Kurumi out on more than one date. You might not be able to afford one date with Kurumi because she's going to eat you out of house and home. She's going to wear out your wallet, dog. Like I said, five thousand calories a day because of the power. I don't know what it is, but uh, I work in nutrition. I gotta imagine it's a lot. So the, the, it's a, the, this juxtaposition of her being kind of like petite, cute. She's got this cute voice. She's um, not exactly demure, but she's like um, very girly outwardly. Like she dresses very girly and 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 the girly hair and stuff. She, but then she's like able to put away food like she's a three hundred pound lineman. I don't know. It's it's. She's this bottomless pit, while also being like petite and cute and kind of girly. And it's, I think it's meant to be kind of funny too. This is meant to be like a character quirk and it works pretty well. It's kind of an endearing Kurumi quirk, but I also feel like maybe not just the metabolism is a thing, but it could be that both, both Kurumi and Manami also both eat so gluttonously as a means of dealing with their grief over their mother's death their mother died during childbirth with them, uh, it's completely possible that they are internalizing this loss and they're even blaming themselves a little bit. And that some of this, um this kind of problematic or possibly even self-destructive eating patterns is a, a sort of a self medication for these negative feelings that they have that are unresolved about their mother's death. and, and, so this is maybe um also something that sort of shows you this kind of trauma underneath that. And it's not something I've thought of except for like the last year or so when I was trying to think of kooky theories like Yusaku is after uh, Kasuga. So but it's but it's entirely possible that their eating patterns are um influenced by this sort of subconscious sense of guilt. And it's so it's interesting that this this voracious appetite that they both show sort of has that self-defense value, but then it also might be revealing kind of a vulnerability with them too, how they feel about their mother's death. It also, it helps put off her potential assault because she just eats and eats and eats for so long. It's like three hours at the buffet and you're just wearing out this assailant's will to do anything with you, right? He's What's he going to do? He's just going to sit there for three hours while you eat. We can, we can end this scene with the conclusion that Kurumi is is defying, and not on purpose because she doesn't know about the video, but she is uh, certainly, by her own characteristics, defying this profile of the victim that was seen in the the Kurumi Napper's video. We get the reuse of Yogiri no Shinobiashi, the sneaky, sneaky song here. This uh, piece of background music helps to connect a few uh, disparate scenes. There are scenes that are involving Kurumi eating and eating and eating, and, and also Kasuga and the gang looking for her and searching. And it, by by having this, uh, a single track of background music overlapping these disparate scenes, it helps to communicate that these scenes are occurring simultaneously. These are things that are happening Maybe on on um, other sides of town or blocks away, but these are things that are happening concurrently. And so it's an effective way. And also, you know, there's 48 episodes, and I don't think there's 48 pieces of BGM. So they, they're going to have to reuse some of these. They're going to appear multiple times. Now, Chicago shows a rare concern for Yusako after he gets punched here, which is kind of neat. Um and, and and even that continues to the end as well. She still shows this concern for him when he's hospitalized because I guess he just gets the crap kicked out of him. He finds one dude in town that can actually beat him up. And I, I love the Costcas terrorizing Umao and Ushko again. Uh, they're professing their love for each other again, kind of normally. In these first several episodes, Umao and Ushko are like normal human beings. They they become far more cartoonish and over the top in the later episodes, but here they they're professing their love together in a completely normal way. They're in a park, they're by themselves, they're just doing their thing. And there's Kurumi like inches away just watching their love scene unfold almost like my wife does with um trashy reality tv you know she's just curious about these people's lives it's another it's another display very effective display of Kurumi's naivety and and it's really just kind of this cute aspect of her right but then it also incites the Kurumi napper to grab Kurumi and run and just he's trying to pull her away from this um, I guess, embarrassing scene where she was interloping on Uma Anushka's, um lovely moment. This also prompts Kurumi to drop Jingaro, whom Kasuga finds. And it also makes me wonder, wouldn't Ayukawa recognize Jingaro in the later OVA episode? I was a cat. I was a fish. I was a cat. Wouldn't wouldn't she recognize Jingaro at that time? just before she spills the red wine all over him and, and colors his fur a little pinkish. I would think so. She got to she got to really kind of be up close and personal with Jingaro here. But again, don't ask these logistical questions. Don't bother your mind with these is what I must always tell myself. And I'll tell you that as well. Manami, of course, was pulled away by uh, Komatsu to search with him to be his buddy for the search. And then they're in a boat. On, on the lake, and of course this is the perfect place to look because, of course, the Kurumi Napper is going to bring Kurumi to this park. I know it because it's such a romantic place. It's all Komatsu's excuse to get Manami alone, and he's doing the same damn thing, right? I mean, the, the the peril here, Manami's peril here, parallels, I didn't think about that sentence very much before I said it, Manami's peril parallels Kurumi's per, peril. Wow. So here Manami is in the same boat she's literally in a boat i'm so sorry about that pun she's in the same boat as kurumi and it also turns out that both of the would-be assailants are of the komatsu clan it's komatsu's older brother who has kidnapped kurumi that day and does in fact attempt to assault kurumi And Kurumi assaults him right back as he deserves. She she does him better than he deserves. She elevates him to, I don't know, 30 or so feet out to the middle of the lake and then drops him near enough to Manami and the younger Komatsu that uh, she's able to interrupt Komatsu uh, as he just about starts to pounce on Manami. And it's really, they just come from this whole rapey family. And I don't know if I approve of either of the Komatsu's or really just don't seem to be great guys. And you can't leave them alone with your sisters because they're not to be trusted. The dual perils, they climax simultaneously. So both twins are kind of in in the same uh, perilous situation at the same time. But then uh, the the they're also resolved at the same time. So these trajectories of the narrative kind of intersect and uh, it's another good way to tie things up in, in kind of a satisfying way for the viewer. It's a little weird to me that that any of the Koskas would speak to either of the Komatsus again. These plot points, they sort of just get shook off, I guess, brushed under the rug. We never see the elder Komatsu again. Uh, we we do see the younger Komatsu again. He's Koskas' uh, classmate and um, friend, I guess. It, what it is is a little bit like there's not a ton of continuity in this show at this point. You know, the events of this episode are not going to carry forward to next episode. The the fact that the younger Komatsu, uh, Seiji Komatsu, did attempt to um, physically assault Manami. I mean, he was going to attempt to hook up with her in the boat. Um, he was right about to lay hands on her. It's not really ever mentioned again that's a lack of continuity, but it also has this sort of feeling like a boys will be boys type of thing, which I am very reluctant to try to write off a would be assault as like boys would be boys because it's not that right. I mean, it's, it's not a matter. I mean, it's not a excusable as a boys will be boys type of thing, but it's, we really only see Koska chastising Kurumi here. That she could have exposed the family power, and what was she thinking, going off alone with this guy? It's it, this is part of the episode where there might be a little bit of a, a sort of a sexist or misogynistic element in that Koska is not beating the shit out of the two Komatsus because they they kind of these are the guys who tried to 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 do the assault. Instead, he's just kind of focusing his ire on on Kudumi for for, for going off with this guy. And I mean, obviously when you're talking to a young person and we have to remember Kurumi is a young person, she's 13 or 14 or whatever. She's a young person and she is, is relatively naive because she, she's youthful and she lacks the experience that comes with older age. And so she maybe is more careless than she should be. And maybe she trusts people that she doesn't know well enough and that she shouldn't be trusting. And if their their last name is Komatsu, if their family name is Komatsu, definitely don't trust them. At this point, I ain't. Kasuka is right to encourage Kurumi to be more judicious about where she goes and with whom. But pinning all the blame on her for her would-be assault, I don't think is, is, is warranted, really, because that's not her fault. She didn't ask to be assaulted by this guy because he bought her food. I, she should have avoided him yeah sure, okay. but then also she's naive. She didn't understand that this person was going to try to um receive a uh, sexual benefit from her in return for uh the the food that he bought her. so it is a little bit like you let the Komatsu's off the hook, and uh Kurumis in trouble for for going off with this guy, and it's one of those things where the blame kind of gets placed on the woman and 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 I don't know. They don't say boys will be boys, but they don't really go after the Komatsu's much for anything. I don't know if that's a personal failing on Costco's part that he should, he also is young and he also is trying to lead, but he is, he's very young to be leading like that. And so maybe it's a personal failing on his part and that he should be focusing more on, on the Komatsu's being would be assailants. Um, and, and and maybe a little bit easier on Kurumi for uh, for being a bit naive and maybe not judicious with who she went around with. Or it could be um, something on the part of the filmmakers that it's important for them to write and animate a scene where Kasuga is chastising Kurumi, but they don't bother with any follow-up on on the Komatsus. So I think that that part, the ending of this episode, is kind of open for interpretation there and... Certainly, there's not going to be any follow up on it again. This is, we've reached kind of the part of the series where the ending of each episode, the events, the specific events that transpire don't have very much bearing on the next episode. In these future episodes, it does give the feeling of kind of a filler ish, fillery filler. Like it's a filler episode. It's not necessarily because these episodes do still progress. Costco's relationship with Ayukawa. Things still develop and move forward, but without a lot of inter episode connectivity. And the reason for that is 1980s television. There's no DVD players, there's no uh, digital on demand viewing. If you miss an episode, you simply have missed the episode unless they rebroadcast it later on. But in order to keep people coming back, they had to make these episodes. Missable to some degree, so that you wouldn't feel inhibited to watch few future episodes if you happen to miss one. So, if you happen to miss this episode, they want you to feel comfortable jumping in next week, which means they can't have a ton of continuity built into the storyline. And they certainly didn't expect that people would be binge watching these things on Retro Crush some 30 years later because they just didn't know that that was going to be the way people consumed this type of product back then. So The time period in which this was made, there was a certain uh, consumption pattern for this type of media, and it 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 influenced the way the media is presented and the the narratives, and and that's part of why some of these episodes might feel a bit like filler, and certain things like "you tried to assault my sister" just never get brought up again. This is the part of the episode where I thank you very, very much for listening. I love you. If you're listening to me, say these words. And if you want me to love you more, go check out my other podcast. It's called "Shit Happens When You Party Naked." It's behind bars, Patreon only. I moved it off of the public podcast players just because uh, I needed to. I'm sorry, guys. I had to do it. But I would love it if you became a patron. Go support Team Almy Studios patreon.com slash team alme alme that's my last name uh please go check us out it's a it's a hilarious comedy podcast it doesn't really have anything to do with anime but or orange road but it's um it's a it's a funny podcast i get to cut loose and uh, i enjoy it very much and i would love it if you would listen to it i think you would enjoy it too also if you need more podcasts to listen to besides Abacabo Cafe, and shit happens when you party naked, that is. You can listen to me on Creatures of the Night. There's a tiger with three eyes in the artwork, and we talk about just kooky stuff. Don't worry about any political anything. We talk about Bigfoot aliens tripping balls on the beach at night. We just, it's fun, all right? Make America Creatures again. Don't don't get all political with the QAnon stuff. We don't. Uh, So come check us out on Creatures of the Night. Check out innercirclepn.com. I'm a member of the Inner Circle uh, Podcast Network. You can find great shows on innercirclepn.com. Shows like The Plunge, The Untrained Eye, Simmons and more Podcast, Failing Hollywood, and The Hood Diner. I love all those podcasts. These are the podcasts I listen to every week. I think you guys will like them too, so please check them out. Innercirclepn.com. I want to thank everybody once again for listening. I do really appreciate you if you have listened to this episode. I really appreciate all the feedback I've gotten from everybody. Please keep it coming. DM me. I'm online. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at abacabupod, A-B-C-B-P-O-D. You can DM me. You can shoot me a message, and um, I'll I'll be happy to to chat with anybody I'd be happy to hear your feedback a lot of you have given me some really great feedback already i love it and i do try to incorporate it into these episodes so if you've got a good point if you make a good point i will be happy to uh incorporate that into my next episode in the meantime i'm going to leave you guys with uh some music right here let's see what this is kiss you
0: The wolf's the mumps that's getting to my head. The killing of freedom. The love of the truth. The love i i to I'm to I'm not sure if I'm not sure if I'm not sure if I'm not sure if I'm i i Let's go Jenny now, come to know, let ya carry you know more, dear my